What's that time again for us to get together, me and Ed, and talk shit about technology? Welcome to episode number 27 of the Development Hell Podcast. Before we get started, let's thank our awesome sponsors. We have a new sponsor, EasyBib. The boys in Berlin are looking for some developers. EasyBib is a bibliography and research management platform. Over 37 million students, that's a lot of people, use, use the service and hundreds of schools and universities have signed up, including New York University, Ohio State University, and the international schools of Dusseldorf und Bavaria. They are looking for junior and senior PHP developers. So if you're in Europa and you feel like moving to Berlin and doing some awesome work on a, what sounds to be a very interesting platform, check out the job, 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 check out the job description that's in the show notes uh, on gun.io. Or you can email some stuff to till, T-I-L-L, plus PHP at Imagine easy, all one word, dot com. And as always, we also have Wonder Networks, Paul Reinheimer and his slave trying to hook things up for us to have the live stream. I know it seems like we were having some problems with it earlier, but hopefully it's working. Uh, and also, we would be remiss to not mention Paul's awesome work with XH GUI, which is a front end for using XH Prof, which is an awesome PHP based profiling tool. But enough about our sponsors. For the first time ever, we have a return guest. Selena, say hi to everybody again. Hello, everybody. So, yes, we have Selena Deckelman, Deckel, Deckel, Deckler, Deckel, Deckelman. What? Founder of a failed startup, but we're not going to talk about the failed startup. Jesus. We're going to talk about, <laughs> we're going to talk about what she's doing these days. So why don't you uh, tell us what you've been up to since you last talked to us way back in, I don't know, episode three or something. I haven't bothered looking at the notes. Oh, gosh. I feel like a grandmother or something. Well, you should. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So I've uh, started at Mozilla. I'm working as a data architect with the team that uh, keeps track of all the crashes so we get crash reports and i help manage that whole system and figure out you know what reports we should run on it boring stuff like that um it's been a little bit interesting and fun though like the first couple months i was there we looked into like flash crashes and we're trying to figure out exactly you know what was wrong (laughs) that was causing browsers to crash while in the middle of some Flash-related thing. And that, that was pretty fun. I got to do some statistics stuff and look at a crapload of data. Like, we have a couple terabyte Postgres instance, like a 200-terabyte HBase cluster. And, uh, yeah, so I get to play around with data quite a bit and working for a nonprofit for, I guess, I guess it's technically the second time I've worked for a nonprofit, but, you know, first time working for a nonprofit writing code. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been good, really good. So, yeah, because the reason I wanted to get you back on was I wanted to kind of find out what it's like to work for. Like, Mozilla is probably one of the most high-profile uh, open-source places that you could work. So I imagine the vibe is kind of different, the feel is kind of different. I mean, I understand that Mozilla can't – I mean – not-for-profit doesn't mean that they're not spending money on people and software and equipment and stuff like that. So uh, how would you contrast it with working at, like, a for-paid place? I mean, I know that you can't really do a startup, failed startup versus uh, Mozilla, but um, <laughs> it would be interesting to kind of hear, like, does it really seem to have a different vibe? Is, it, is there different types of pressures knowing that it's not really about making money? It's about providing some awesome tools for people. 
Yeah, yeah, it is different in that respect. Like the, there's a lot of do it right instead of get it done right away, which I appreciate and enjoy. Uh, there's also the community of people that I work with are very, of course, passionate about Firefox. They're passionate about you know all of the products that people are working on. Um, I think a huge difference just for me as an individual is that all the work that I do on a daily basis, very, very few exceptions is open source. So I get to write something and immediately push it, uh, public. And I've never been able to do that before in any job. Uh, so that was very, it's interesting. I, I mean, in a way it's like incredibly liberating. It's also a bit terrifying to have, you know, most of the work that I'm doing be so public, but you know, I'm like four months in now and I don't, I don't really think about it too much, you know, that I'm like pushing terrible code live or, <laughs> um, <laughs> or embarrassing myself excessively. But I, I, you know, the first, the first couple of months was, was sort of unnerving. Cause I was like, Oh, you know, what if somebody sees this terrible thing? But then what I realized is that mostly people aren't paying any attention at all, except for my coworkers. So, um, that made it, <laughs> That made it a lot better. Right. The thing, yeah. people, uh, a lot of developers tend to think that everybody, especially any of them who are kind of public with the things that they do, that they think that people are sitting in silent judgment of them. And my right. experiences have been that for the most part, nobody's really paying attention and most people don't really give a shit what you're doing. But it's interesting that a lot of people have that pressure that they feel, especially if what you do, um, not just the output of the work that you're doing is visible to everybody, but people can actually go and see the things that you have actually been working on and take a look. And maybe there'll be an asshole and they'll judge you. They'll try to pick apart your code. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm accustomed to, you know, the Postgres community, which, you know, for the most part, anything that I would ever share there is something that I spent a lot of time working on. So to just have my daily output, kind of out there it's it's pretty dramatically different even though i'm really already kind of used to working in public um yeah so 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 that's interesting and different um one thing i think is probably unique to mozilla as opposed to most nonprofits that you might work for in the u.s or or canada um is that the so many people are not from around here um, like my entire team is distributed. I don't have a single coworker that is in Portland with me. There's other people at Mozilla that, that work from Portland, but everybody here is not on my team. So I'm interacting with people mostly through like IRC and we have this, uh, you know, conference software called video and we use Skype or whatever, but it's all very remote. So that's a lot more like my open source work in general. And I've found that I really like it. Um, that combined with like having like a few coworkers here in town and a desk mate and stuff like that. Like it's been, it's been uh, a good, a good transition and, and more like the ideal work environment that I was probably looking for before. <laughs> Yes. So that's interesting. Like, it sounds like, you know, we've had different discussions about what it's like to do to work remotely and, you know, when does it work and when is it not? It has always, I've always kind of been given the impression that Mozilla has just like bought whole hog into 
remote working, and so they seem to have a lot of good processes down for doing that well. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of baked into everything since, you know, that's how we're interacting with our users. Like this year, or I guess maybe, well, it was last year now, uh, Mitchell Baker moved to Spain. Um, she's the uh, chief lizard wrangler is her official title, but mm. she she's basically the head <laughs> the head of all of Mozilla. And um, she moved to Spain with her family to just experience what it was like to be, you know, a European user of Firefox mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, has been directing the company from over there. And most, most of the company is kind of based in the Bay Area, like Mountain View and San Francisco. We have a fairly large office in Mountain View and another um, smaller but, but still substantial office in San Francisco. And we're like over 700 people, I think, rapidly approaching 800 um, and continuing to hire at a very rapid pace. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. Like my, my boss is, uh, Laura Thompson and she was one of, you Laura know, Laura Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> Laura is awesome. She is. Well, she's, she's your amazing. boss. That's very cool. Yeah, she is. It's so Big shout great. out to Laura. Hi, Laura. Hope you listen to this. Laura's the best. She got me an interview years ago at Mozilla. It was a very interesting experience to fly out there, interview, and come back in about, I don't know, 18 hours or so. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did the gauntlet of like having to talk to like eight people in five hours. It was really interesting. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, their interviews are kind of long. Like the interview process takes a while with us, but... Yeah, it kind of reminds me, actually, when I, my first job out of college was with Intel, and they did kind of a similar thing, like a whole day long um, with like eight different people. It's crazy. But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, the Mozilla is growing really fast. And um, that's, that's changing things a bit. Like people, there's been a little bit of like, oh, you know, it's not like the old Mozilla. But I think, I don't know, my experience with it in just these past few months is that you know, like any company, it's it's about your team and the people that you work with directly every day. And I think that Mozilla is kind of getting that right in terms of just putting a lot of, um, I don't know, the word that's coming to mind is agency, but that's not a very good word. But just like, you know, you push decision making and responsibility for making things work as, you know, far out into the individual as you can and then just you know you've got there's there's a lot more management than there was um even a year ago but for the most part people are still just making decisions as individuals and and uh pushing code um hopefully that works every day so it's it's um yeah i i really like it a lot and i i think i think it's really neat to work in a place that is very uh, cognizant of like user privacy and what individual users need. And that that's like at the forefront of our mission. I like that a lot. Yes. I find that appealing as well. I, uh, (laughs) I think that one of the things I really enjoyed when I was working at, um, at the uh, computer security research center that I worked at at Purdue was that kind of feeling that you were doing something and it was motivated by sort of trying to do the right thing as opposed to, um, you know, 
necessarily just trying to eat or make some other people money or something like that, or make more money for yourself, which is all well and good. But that was something that I really valued being able to kind of fall back on. Um, and uh, sometimes I miss that, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's, it's kind of funny because it, like, my experience telling people that I work for Mozilla. Like, it was hilarious. I went to this, um, hilarious to me, like, I, I went uh-huh. to this little conference out in Hood River, um, which is maybe, like, 40 minutes drive from Portland, Oregon. Uh, it was, like, a telecom conference. It's mostly people from all over Oregon who work on telecommunications infrastructure. So it's, like, old-school telco people and a lot older audience than normally I would encounter at a conference and I'm like going there and I'm like sitting down at a table, like, you know, having a beer and somebody comes up to me and is like, can I touch you? What? I just found out that you work at Mozilla. And I was like, this is like the uh, weirdest thing ever. <laughs> like, I don't even know what to do with you. Ah. Oh, <laughs> good Lord. That's, that, that would, that would creep me out big time. <laughs> and I would wasn't. be too, I would be like, I would be too creeped out to actually come up to somebody and say, can I touch you because you work at a specific place? Um, Isn't that weird? I can't even begin to think the weird sort of misogynistic, sexist overtones that that whole thing is like. Well, there is that. I I mean, I I mean, I would joke normally I have to pay ladies to touch them, but can I touch you? I mean, just, you know what I mean? It's just like, whoa. Yeah. 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 There's that aspect of it. But it also like, I was, I guess I was trying to be really charitable in my interpretation of why that happened. And I was just like thinking, I was like, oh man, just like the reputation of Mozilla. There was that aspect of it. There was also the creeper aspect of it. But the the idea that people don't really think of Mozilla as being a place that, like, you know, there's these people out there working there, and you're just gonna like run into them on a daily basis. You know, like I, I don't know. There's a little bit of that. Uh, going on, I think. And there, there was also like in the questions that people were asking me in my talk, um, I was just speaking with a group of people about internationally kind of the problems that are a bit different than Oregon has in telecom infrastructure and, you know, whatever. Um, and I was talking about my experience going to Nigeria and working with a, a new government there and like, the questions that people were asking me about Mozilla were just like, they were, they were very much these high minded questions. It wasn't like about my personal experience at all. They were like asking these like intense policy questions. And I was like, Whoa, like I wasn't really, did people ask you why do the plugins leak so much memory? (laughs) No, it wasn't like that at all. Like it was about like, um, uh, you know, like, like user privacy, you know, they're asking me these like intense policy, like, should I use Chrome instead of Firefox or Firefox instead of Chrome because of these user privacy issues and kind of what are the implications about that? And there was like a, a policy person from D.C. in the room. So I think that that kind of influenced it. But just to be asked these, you know, I mean, they're kind of fundamental questions about, you know, how our information gets used and, you know, the bigger philosophy behind why, you know, Firefox is important. Uh, like I wasn't really expecting that. And I, you know, again, I, I'd only been at Mozilla for like a month too, 
But like all of a sudden, to, like be in this position where people are like, "Oh, you represent Mozilla. Like you need to answer this question." I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, <laughs> surely there is some policy document that I can reference <laughs> on the internet right now because this is a little intense. But yeah, I just uh, that there's like that. You know, I'm representing an institution that people view as this, you know, force for whatever. And um, that, I don't know, I I wasn't really thinking about that exactly when I took the job. Uh, But it's definitely been part of the experience. Is that something you like or is it not? Has it generally been a positive aspect of stuff that you, you know, you sort of end up being a de facto representative of the organization? Yeah, like I I mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that I prefer being a representative of the organization, but I like the fact that people think of Mozilla so highly that they respect the organization was trying to do so much that they just kind of expect people to play that role. Like I think that's a good thing. Like I don't think it's bad at all. Right. Um it kind of reminds me a little bit of what happens when you start talking about like women in tech issues, you mm-hmm. know, you just kind of become this representative of all these other people that, you know, <laughs> it's debatable, right. like whether you really are representing them or whatever, but just because you're there, you know, like that's, that's your role to play. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just like, it's a little disconcerting when you kind of walk into a room and people are like, oh yeah, now you represent this. Right. I, it, it reminds me of, uh, well, plenty of people I've known who worked at Microsoft, but it's usually sort of the opposite way. It's kind of gotten a little better over the years, but say like 10 or 15 years ago, like if you mentioned that you work at Microsoft, people would give you shit. Like, I mean, yeah. from, uh, from, from, you know, top to right. bottom, it's like this, you know, you got to you know, my Microsoft Word sucks, you know, or something like that, right? Yeah, why does my shit crash all the time? Fix it. Right, like this guy, <laughs> like, he doesn't work on that. He doesn't do it, has nothing to do with it, right? But Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can't wait until we, like, make, like, some major, like, screw-up and I get held accountable. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, right. but it's, not, it's not like that at all, right? Like, it's totally the very positive side of it. There's so much goodwill, like, people love that it exists. A lot of people don't realize that the driving force is a nonprofit and getting to explain that is really fun and good. Uh, it's just, you know, I wasn't quite prepared for the questions that I was asked or the way that people were kind of treating me. Um, just because I said I worked there. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that happens inevitably. Any place you work, you end up kind of being an ambassador or a spokes, an unwilling spokesperson at times. <laughs> but, I mean, right, especially with Twitter, right? Like, yes, yes. Yeah. Once you people, put your yeah, once people, place it's like, where you work it, in your Twitter bio. It's the same thing, like people in the um, softball league that I'm in. I've had people say, oh, Chris <laughs> does stuff with computers. Uh, he can probably fix your computer. I'm like, bro, I don't do that. <laughs> I, I said, I tell computers what to do. I don't fix them. <laughs> so, which provides oh, man, a very the number of yeah, times which, my neighbors you know, have had me come yeah. over to fix their Windows machines, and I'm like, you guys know that I haven't looked 
or booted into Windows in like 12 years, right? Right. Yeah. So that's a nice segue into our next topic where we wanted to talk about frustrations about developing on uh, OS 10 versus Linux. I see people all the time on Twitter complaining about how operating system X sucks to do Y. And me personally, I'm not a power user. I'm the type of person who prefers to not struggle against their tools. If a tool gives me a hard time, I get rid of it and switch to using something that is a better fit. But I see all the time people complaining about, I've seen people like, oh, I've had a Mac and they were terrible and I gave it back. And it always makes me wonder, you know, what are some people actually doing to their laptops and other machines that they're constantly crashing on them? So I know we were talking some shit earlier before the we started recording about, um, uh, I was talking about how Celine has been uh, blogging and and twitting, twitting, tweeting. Oh God, tweeting about uh, her experiences trying to get just get stuff working um, under Linux. So why don't you talk a bit? I mean, because like I said my my experience have been that for the type of work that I do, OS ten has been perfectly adequate, that I'm able to set up environments to do work in PHP and Python and Node and stuff like that. Almost no problem. I found that Homebrew was a tool uh, for those who use Macs that just made so much of the stuff that I did. Used to have to do by hand. Uh, Homebrew has made most of those problems go away. So Yeah, shout out for Homebrew. It's shout amazing. out to Homebrew. Awesome job it. on home, with, with Homebrew. Just making. I used to use Mac ports and I used Fink and a bunch of stuff, but I just found that once Homebrew was <laughs> available that was it 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 would just work and i would never have to worry about those things anymore so why don't you talk to us a little bit about your your struggles just to get shit set up the way that you want it to be right yeah so when i took the job at mozilla i decided i was gonna um switch to a linux desktop and i had a couple reasons for that one was that i am doing a data intensive job and so i was going to be working with a lot of different um, database tools. Sorry, my cat is like, can, you can't hear my cat, can you? I heard a very faint cat-like sound, but that's not a problem for me. You, <laughs> okay, that cat, right. that cat can be on if you my want. Cat funny that's all right. Now for a little while. Um, anyway, so <laughs> so I decided to switch to a Linux desktop, you know, because I was going to be installing all of these uh, data-related tools. You know, like I, we're working with HBase. You know, we've got. Um, Postgres, we're going to be introducing some kind of a queuing system. You know, it was all this, all this stuff. And it was a lot easier to install on Linux. And most of the people I was working with were, you know, creating vagrant instances. And that's fine, um, you know, like using uh, VirtualBox or whatever for that. But it's, it's kind of slow. Anyway, so I switched. And, um, it, you know, it hasn't been a perfect experience. Like, I would say that my first couple weeks were incredibly frustrating. But over the long haul, it's been really nice to have a package manager that, I mean, homebrew's great, but it's really not a package manager. Like it really doesn't keep track of all the crap that you install and you can't like carefully remove things, different versions of things and stuff like that. It all just depends on how good the person was that wrote the homebrew script. I mean, I, and that's not to knock homebrew at all. Like homebrew's a lifesaver. It's so much better than the alternatives, like in my experience with it, uh, when I was working with Fink as well and, and all kinds of different other things. But having like RPMs, it's <laughs> there's just no comparison. Um, and so, you know, for me, being able to test exactly what a user of 
the open source version of the tool that we, well, not the version, but the open source tools that we use, we use, uh, we, we produce a package called Socorro and being able to test all of that, uh, without having to worry about the differences on OS 10 has been really nice. And it just speeds up a lot of things and I can search for RPMs. Like it's just the, the infrastructure around packages and search is so much better. Uh, yeah. So I like that a lot. Um, and then other than that, like, I don't know. I, I think the worst parts about the Linux experience are probably the, the video sharing. Um, and you know, like Skype is just like a bear eats up a lot of CPU and memory and eventually doesn't, doesn't do so great there. But all of the developer stuff that I do, other than like trying to communicate with people, <laughs> The developer stuff is a lot faster and better. Uh-huh. You could stick with uh, OS 10 and then use Vagrant um, with some flavor of um, Linux to do all your development work if you um, really like the OS 10 experience. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And that's, you know, honestly, like most of my coworkers do that. Um, I just decided that I wanted to see. It's been about 12 years since the last time that I used Linux on the desktop regularly. Uh, so I just was like, eh, you know, I might as well switch, exercise my brain a little bit and see how it was. And I, I mean, I feel like my Linux desktop experience was a lot better 12 years ago. That's kind of sad. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, once, once you figure out how to install everything, like it's okay. But yeah, I, I really don't think the Linux desktop has significantly improved. Well, Since that's way back then. That's a shame, really, when you think of they've had, I know. They, <laughs> like, they've had all this, like t- they've had it, all this but... <laughs> time to try to get their shit together and they still can't. I guess it's because you have so much freedom with the Linux desktop. There are so many graphical toolkits. There's so many window managers you can choose from. It's right. there's the, the chance of people rallying behind one window manager, one graphical toolkit to just provide a consistent look and feel, it, it ain't going to happen. I mean, I remember I before I got Macs, I used Linux on the desktop all the time too. So um, I remember endless amounts of time tinkering with things, trying to find that right set of tools, the right window manager, um, you know, the right toolkits, all that stuff. I mean, it was fun tweaking all that stuff and just kind of getting a feel for how Linux worked um um, behind the scenes, but at some point I was just like, you know what? I'm just gonna join the other cool kids. I'm gonna buy a Mac because for me, uh, OS 10 was providing the best graphical interface that sat on top of a of a Linux type operating system for me. Right, and I think a huge problem with Linux laptops in particular is the documentation for the hardware. Um, you know, I I spent in incredible amount of time just trying to figure out what driver I needed to compile for my camera. And the fact that that's even a problem, <laughs> I mean, it's just this fundamental disconnect between the people who are developing the operating system and, um, working, you know, working with developing the hardware and the people who are using Linux on the desktop it just shows you how far apart those two things are and it's sad like i i wish that it worked a lot better um but yeah i don't i don't really see like a a 
an easy solution for that. Um, sorry, I really need to open my door so the cat stops scratching at the door. Hold on. The cat, the cat oh. has trained me. Like I can't think. It's terrible. Pavlovian uh, response to that. Uh, I know. I'm just like, oh, God, must open the door. Can't control Earth. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll leave it in. It's good for the... It keeps it real, <laughs> right? This is what we all have to deal with. Cats. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know what, what What you were saying about the, the Linux stuff, uh, on a small, it's a different scale, but it reminds me a lot of uh, working in PHP and, like, and like the... Uh, because there's no, it, like getting everybody to go in the same direction is nigh impossible, right? Yeah. It, it's sort of like the culture of it is like, well, I'll do whatever the hell I want to with it, and so you have tons of different, I get, you know, I, you have tons of different distros, and you have tons of different approaches, and um, just no, you can't get anybody, you can't get everybody going in the same direction. It says, no, this is really, this is what's going to advance this. Uh, in the best way, and you know, did, uh, did I, you happen to read my blog post I did the other day? It was kind of yeah. About I don't this. read blog posts. Well, we should be. I, I read yours. all yours. Don't be an I'm asshole. Sorry, man. I missed it. What was it? I'm about? pretty sure I did. Uh, actually, no, just I, I did a. I won't go into too much because this show isn't really supposed to be about me. Um, <laughs> I just, I just did a, I just did a blog post about the whole um, PSR, the PHP standards. Requirements, PH, what? Oh God, see, I'm blanking out. PSRs, I know the mess. They're kind of like an attempt to do the PE, the PEP things that they have in Python. Yeah, yeah. I have to stop you for a second. What? So, the, what you can tell about the difference between PHP and Python is yeah. that in the entire history of Python, how many they have like hundreds of PEPs, like yeah, like, a lot. The, and in they are have gotten up to uh, three. Up to four. And, Don't and be a hater. Four. Oh, okay. So because it starts at zero, <laughs> they have four. See what, a, see what an asshole Ed has turned into now that he doesn't do PHP work anymore. Like it's the, the personality change what do you is just dramatic. Only do JavaScript now. Like what do you do? Oh, he's well, a, he's a I, Python guy. So you two can really? like you two oh, can God. like blow kisses at each other while the PHP yes. guy is over here in the corner. I think it's in the thousands. I'm looking at. I'm seeing like. Three thousand. So they just started. But the, my the point of my blog post was that that I it was I had I picked a really cool name for it. It was called Soapboxes, Standards, and Shamans. So I kind of talked about my thoughts Aww. on the whole PSR thing, what they're trying to do, what I thought fit, what I thought didn't fit, and it was just kind of interesting because Ed's right. PHP is this big mess, and everybody wants to do their own thing. And at some point. People have to kind of step and step up and say, "Okay, this this is getting ridiculous. They're going in too many directions at once. If we want things to get better for the language as a whole, sometimes we all have to stop doing our own shit and get behind a few kind of critical things and use those as a roadmap to push forward." So some of the it, this all comes out of the framework interoperability group, which is an attempt to kind of say. Some big projects, we're putting together a few standards that we're going to follow, and we encourage everyone else to follow them because that way it makes it easier to integrate projects together. Because really, the biggest yeah, thing about awesome. the biggest problem with PHP, well, I mean, it's got tons of problems, but one of the bigger problems was 
until recently, it was really difficult to integrate other uh, modules from other frameworks together. It required a Herculean effort to make it work. So now with Composer and attempts to kind of create standards for other things, uh, it's getting a lot easier. So yes, the PEP stuff, there's like a thousand of them or whatever. And I think those are really awesome. I think PEP 8 is a perfect example of what happens when the people who are the driving force behind the language say, these are the way we want things to be done. And everybody gets in lockstep and says, yes, Guido, this is how we're going to do things because we happen to think that this is good. And in PHP, there's like lots of pissing and moaning about the two PSRs that have come out that talk about coding standards and how things should be organized. And I understand. I'm, I understand people resent being told that what they're doing is suboptimal. But sometimes, you know what? Sometimes other people are right and your stuff is shit and you need to get your act together and make it better so it, so it fits in easier with other people's stuff. Python is, I think, is unique in that the limitation of using uh, significant white space kind of forces everything to look the same. It's I think you really have to work hard to make Python code look really weird. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's true. And that's just like an element of the language. But yeah, I, I think, Pepe, you know, yeah, I agree with so many things you just said. Go ahead, Ed. I just interrupted you. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I, it's, I just think culturally there's just a there's just different approaches. And at the end of the day, the culture of say PHP is very much, it's very anarchic and Python is decidedly not. It doesn't mean that there's not debate within Python about like, well, this is a good idea or this is a bad idea, but ultimately there's a value culturally in making decisions and going in certain directions. Right. And the the sort of deciding on standards. And if anything, there's a, uh, in there's in PHP like a pretty great suspicion of anybody trying to apply standards across the board, and so that, that's just the nature. That's the same of it. in the Perl community, and we know how that ended. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, nobody uses that anymore, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, but to get it back to, I mean, I just it reminds me of I think it both some of the things that made you know that that. It made Linux attractive to to many people, but at the same time, it, it you know uh, it, it it getting I guess the kind of mainstream acceptance and sort of like consumer acceptance it makes it really really hard because you know I I'm pretty pragmatic about stuff and most of the things I've seen like say uh, the Ubuntu guys do on the desktop I'm generally I think I understand why they're doing it. Um, but there's, but there's just huge, my impression is that lots of backlash against, against the, like the, the attempts they're making to really say, simplify and standardize the UI and move it in a, in a different direction. And, you know, sure. yeah. um, well, there's backlash yeah. from like a very vocal developer community, right? but I, and I, you know, honestly, like, I don't know enough about the desktop situation from a user standpoint, you know, like other than mm-hmm. my experience that I've had over the last four months, like, I don't really know enough about it to say, yeah, this is how people are responding to it. But the thing, the, the thing that I keep coming back to is phones and things like Firefox OS and Android and how the phone experience might actually be the way, like the path to coming up with a unified Linux desktop. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I hope. 
Like, I hope that that experience, you know, turns into like, okay, here's these people, they're using these phones and this is their, for a lot of people, it's like the primary way that they interact with a computer, you know, like that's, that's it. Um, and taking that information and what we know about how people use their phones and transferring that to the desktop. And that might be a way to get people behind a unified Linux experience. Right. But I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> um, Didn't they try that with like... Open Moco? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, I just wanted to say Open Moco. I <laughs> heard that name a long Or Tizen Moco. or like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it, it's 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 interesting though. I mean, like you you'd probably say that like the Open Moco stuff was just before its time, right? I it mean, was, it was, and like it was amazing when I first saw it. I mean, I saw that cop. It was like the first time I went to scale. I think I saw somebody with one of those. He was mm-hmm. he like had a booth and and was showing it. I think I think Allison Randall actually like was um uh at their booth like you know hanging out talking to people about it, but um. Uh, you know, the, yeah, I, I really think probably the phone interface is, is the way to think about how these general, you know, consumer desktop interfaces should be working. Uh, yeah. but you know, that's, and, and that's, you know, playing out in the design world, you know, as far as like, you know, mobile f- design for mobile first and then like add on crap for the desktop. Like people, people are kind of going in that direction, but yeah, the, the window manager community really hasn't, you know, figured that out yet. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, so I think my impression is that there's, I think ultimately the window, the mouse and keyboard windowing UI is not actually intuitive, but once you get used to it, then you're used to it, and you're. I think a, I think a classic problem I see people run into is that they think that something is intuitive when it's not when they're just used to it. Yeah, and, oh, totally. Um, yeah, definitely. Like, like watching when I watch my son try to try original, like initially try to learn how to use a mouse. It's not. <laughs> it's not intuitive in any way. It's not yeah. at all. But. It's action at a distance, right? <laughs> right. There's no, you just get, you get used, you do it so much that it becomes, you don't have, it gets to a point where you don't have to think about it. But it's the same way as like, you know, driving a car is not intuitive. You just get, do it a bunch and then you get used to it, right? Um, yeah. And that, and honestly, like this, this, so I've been, so another thing I've been working on, um, as I'm learning this new job is I've been teaching classes for Pi Ladies here in Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, trying to like the two workshops that we had, cause we were trying to get, uh, these are women that are learning Python and they want to start contributing to open source projects. And so we're trying to teach them the tools that you need to know in order to contribute to these projects. And the, a big part of that is Git, like understanding some basic revision control and then, and then being able to do the basic stuff that you need to do with Git. And then also, um, understanding command line mm-hmm. stuff. Right. And that's where you see, you know, the first time that you're teaching someone LS and what a directory is and um, how to navigate around and then also follow directions that someone's put in a readme or, you know, create a virtual end for the first time. Like all, all this stuff, there's 
there's so much background knowledge that people assume and um, so many things that we overlook when you don't kind of have that beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. And I just see that so much because I'm, you know, forced to confront it. You know, every time we have one of these meetings, because we had we had meetings like twice a week for five or six weeks. And every time I was coming, you know, I'm like trying to like show people this stuff and you just realize, oh, my God, like it's so unfriendly. It's so harsh trying to teach yeah. people this stuff. And that's that's like the frontier to me. That's like where we're at right now, like the stuff that we need to fix. It's like when someone sits down to use Git, it shouldn't take them three weeks to just kind of figure out what's going on. You know, oh, like we yeah. should have some better right. documentation. We should have some better tutorials. Yeah. Well, and part of that is just uh, I, I get on I'll get on a rant about this, but I, I, I get wins because of um, uh, because of popularity, not because mm-hmm. it's a better or more you know an easier tool to use, right? And it's, were we talking about this before we started, like how all software is terrible? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 well, and Git's like particularly bad. It just wasn't designed to be easy to use. And it has, and, and I think it, it really feels like it's one of those things where it's plumbing and then no one made like the sink and the toilet and the, you know, like it just never came out. But GitHub, it came out and then people reject GitHub and it's like, Git came up, Git came up because Linus Torvalds wanted to use something else to maintain the Linux source tree because he had been using, I don't know, what was it called? BitKeeper Bit, or Bit something? BitKeeper, yeah. So yeah. He because could, they decided he they took away use, their free Yeah, he couldn't version. use it anymore for whatever reason, yeah. so Linus was just no, like... No, no, it was the licensing. He was like, fuck y'all, I'm going to come up with my own yeah. version free. control system. So he just yeah, created this thing it. and somehow, I think, I mean, I think that Git won because of GitHub, not because of any other reason. Git won oh, because yes. of GitHub. Because some people yes. went and created a wrapper around Git Yes, that and was web accessible, and it's wrapper. called GitHub. Like it's yeah. really awesome. Yeah, no, GitHub is yeah, people, awesome. Yeah, people like complain about it a lot. Like that—that's another interesting thing in the community. Like people are complaining about it a lot uh, because if you want certain features, you know, you got to pay seven bucks a month. But I don't know. Like I'm pretty okay with that. Like I subsidize. Well, you know, I'd subsidize people to use it. Like it's really. I don't know. I don't. I don't. Think I don't. It's a bad I, I thing wonder to what pay seven bucks a month. I wonder what features they are too. I mean, most of the experience I've had is that the only features that I have ever paid for are just having a private repo, and it seems like everything else yeah. is pretty much there. So yeah, it's it's just the privacy is the only thing I pay for, and then there's a certain number attached to that, right? But like, right. I, I, it's just it's interesting to me, like how opposed people are to paying what I think is a nominal amount. I mean, that's like what, like two lattes? Hey, give me a break. <laughs> Really yeah, annoying. I it's uh, I I don't know I, that that stuff has never bothered me. Like paying seven bucks a month, I don't. It's just not that much, you know. I do, I you know I know people who would certainly pay that. You pay that for Netflix or something. Let me let me relate. Let know, me relate like a little story yeah. to you about people's unwillingness to pay for things. Me being no, this is a story. <laughs> this is a story about this is a story about cheap bastards who don't under, who understand the yes. cost the price of everything but the value of nothing. So <laughs> la- last week, in honor of the one year anniversary of the most awesome testing PHP book ever, I dropped the price <laughs> of my book down to seven fifty for the week. Okay. Nice. Now normally I don't give a shit about comments about people complaining about the book because man, you know what? 
I got a bunch of money from it. You don't like it. That's okay because there's plenty of people that do. So I had one guy actually complain that, oh, I was going to buy it, but you know, I, I thought the uh, at that price point, I thought the lack of a, of a really good code sample is a problem. I thought, really? You're not going to pay $750 for something that will definitely help you become a better coder? I mean, that's that type of mentality. It's like, you don't want to pay? Really? Seven dollars. You probably. I'm thinking you probably wasted more than seven fifty on your way to work today. So, you know. Well, it's funny how we we get that way. I mean, I think you see the same. I, it's a human behavior thing, and I think it has to do with how we assign relative value to things. Like, like it, it, I don't understand why people complain about paying like two or three dollars for a, a, a phone application. I mean, that is that's that's. That's like no Especially money. It's like a one-time fee. Like they're not right. even. I mean, it's not like a monthly thing. It's like five bucks. Well, the and the thing that I compared this to was what I spent on records and CDs when I was oh, sixteen yeah. years old, compared yeah. to what I spend on anything now. You know, I used to spend fifteen to twenty dollars for mm. a record. Yep. And like, when is the last freaking time you spent that much for a whole album? Oh no, yeah, it's it's be you know, yeah, I, I it's hard for me to spend that much. I rarely, you know, I I buy stuff in MP3s now, but I'm yeah. like, man, that's but that's even, ten but bucks. Even for that's like a, a lot. whole album off of Amazon, like you would never spend that much. And right. I, and then I go and I you know I'm cleaning out my basement right now because we're remodeling our basement and our house. <laughs> I'm yep. just like looking at this like crazy collection of records and CDs that I've got. And I'm just like thinking about like how much money that represents. And I'm like, wow, like I haven't spent that much in the last five years on yeah. music. And yeah. Yeah, yet well, yeah. people complain so much about, you know, the, I don't know. I just think about the amount of time invested, like all this stuff. Anyway. I guess part of it just I, I I would guess that part of it is the fact that physical things we automatically apply more value to them I think and we just just out of the box you're just like if it's physical it there's there's something that we associate with that that we don't associate with something that we could just down you know just I don't know. I think, I, think, I think it's sheep like behavior. They see somebody else who they may respect. A little bit who says, Oh, I don't see, I couldn't see myself paying three bucks for an iPhone app. So think, yeah, man, that's way too much money for one of these things. I think it's all, I think that stuff about, about being, about the hypocrisy of, of paying $30 for a physical object, but being unwilling to pay $2 for a virtual object. I think that's learned behavior. I think that's just somebody told, somebody made a snarky comment or somebody who's a little bit more vocal than other people said they didn't want to pay for it for whatever reason. So they just jump on board and say, yeah, man, virtual things should cost less than physical things. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, way to back me up. Are we just being old person haters now? Like, I don't know. That's exactly what Get off my lawn, et cetera. Both ways uphill. Exactly. <laughs> Summarize the whole last like ten minutes. That's right, <laughs> pretty much. Fuck y'all. Yeah, you Every podcast should just be fill, fill in the blank right? technology. Like, how, like Fuck this y'all. is a fundamental problem, though. I think of people who create software, like now, mm-hmm. like how do we assign value to our work? Really? It's t- yeah, it's tough. Um, I think it particularly when your mentality is that you just give that you give stuff away. 
if you're if you you are like your natural tendency is to work in an open source model and and just give stuff away automatically that you automatically want to share it and like if you're not in that mentality and you run with the idea that well my source code is is super sensitive and secret and there's a great value in that and so you should pay for that if you've taken that model that then it's kind of a natural thing for you but, i i think a yeah. lo- i think a lot of people actually underprice the things that they create oh um, yeah they always well especially in our industry because people i mean be, well I think the reason is, and I'd be interested to think to hear what you guys think, but I, I think the reason is because like people don't really know what it's worth. I think people are actually afraid. I mean, okay, uh, let me explain oh. a little bit because being the info product whore that I've become through taking Good segue. Um, taking that thirty by five hundred course, <laughs> that the the big thing is people. People price things low because they're worried other people aren't going to like it. And it's a self-confidence thing. It's like if you if you produce something and you know the material and you're presenting it in a way that you're actually really solving a problem for somebody, then there's no reason to say, I think it's worth X. And there will be people, there, there will always be people that will never be willing to pay that. There will be people that will be willing to pay the price that you want with a tiny bit of persuasion. And then there'll be some people who will go like, fuck yeah, I think this is a value at, I think if, if you're charging 20, there'll be some people who say like, I think at 40 bucks, I'm getting an awesome deal. So I just think the tendency of especially Programmers, because programmers don't think like business people. Most of them don't. So they have no idea how to convince people that something that they're doing is going to solve a problem for them. Because this is, this is the classic thing about how you really make money off of things like this. You provide value by solving a problem that people have. I, there's a quote uh, that I love, love to use that kind of explains how I'm starting to think about these things. In the gold rush, you don't make money being the miner. You make money by being the person selling pickaxes and shovels. Right? <laughs> right. So you yeah, want to be create, totally. you want to be creating things that are solving problems for people. If you choose to give them away via open source, that's entirely up to you. I don't, I don't say that everyone should charge for stuff, but if you create something that has value and you want to charge for it, don't be afraid to ask, to ask people for money, to ask you to pay for your knowledge. Why not? You, you only have so, there's only so many keystrokes in your fingers before carpal tunnel turns you into a cripple. There's only so much time you have <laughs> to live. So my, you might as well try to maximize your happiness and maximize the amount of money that you can make because you still have to pay bills. Unless you have a sugar daddy or sugar mama who's paying all your bills, you still need to find a way to make money so you can just live and do the things that you really want to do. So right. to be fair, um, I think in a gold rush, the guy who makes the most money is the guy who sells liquor and, and prostitutes. <laughs> Those are just as valuable as those are just as valuable as pickaxes and shovels, show? my friend. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, the series. Deadwood. Anyway. Deadwood. Yeah, yeah. right. You yeah, Deadwood. Exactly. That's exactly right. The uh, the show that took the word <laughs> cocksucker to uh, art form. <laughs> I you know I've only watched like two episodes. There's so a really there's a yet. video up on YouTube about I think shows every single time the word cocksucker was said in Deadwood. Oh god! And it's about twelve minutes long. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it is, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that it is an issue. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid to charge for money because they get that one rejection, you know. And being a salesperson, 
just from my limited experience with it, being a salesperson, you get rejected all the time Uh and you just kind of get used to it and you end up being okay with it. But it is scary. Oh, I I worried about that when I did my, my, um, my book, I worried about rejection. I worried about people not wanting to buy it. And then I found out, um, with variable pricing in place, the range that people were willing to pay. So that gave me confidence to know that, you know what, as long as you provide a solution to people and it's not really outrageous, the amount of money that you're asking, then there will be people who will gladly give you um, a tiny fraction of their income in exchange for giving them something that will fix a problem that they're having. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And I, I think another thing about open source that people do not realize is like, uh, there's a really great presentation. I saw, I went to this conference in Germany last year and a good friend of mine gave a talk about how corporations use open source and the strategy they apply to it. And like so much of the utility for a corporation, like a really large corporation, like, Oracle, say, for example, part of the reason why they acquire open source products is so that they can screw over their competition. Like it's a way, like it's a, it's a tool for leveling the playing field for some certain technology and understanding like how disruptive it is, like that it's not that open source isn't necessary. It often is not a thing that corporations use to make money you know like it's a way of undercutting their competition well yeah understanding that about your own work like that's something that i think a lot of developers don't really get like how their work is being used by a corporation in that context i think um yeah i mean that's like a classic example of at least one way to compete is to if you can commoditize one like the thing that everybody else is doing uh, but you can you have commoditized it but can make something else that that builds on top of that commodity that people value it's kind of like uh, i think one argument you could say is that like apple with their pricing model they've tried to take with like the app store stuff and even their own products you saw them drop the the price of let's say you know like um Final Cut and Logic and stuff like that. These are programs that cost like seven or eight hundred dollars when they're box software, and when they started selling through the App Store, they dropped them like seventy or eighty percent. Oh wow! And yeah, um, and I think that part of that is I think that they're trying to commoditize the software. Yeah. Right. So you well, and, and because, to get you to you use know, that channel. Right, like right. that's worth way more to them than the software using that right. channel, mm-hmm. because that that and that ends up locking you into using their hardware, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, um, and I admit it's really nice, and and pr- one of the big reasons why I still use an iPhone is because I know I can get lots of stuff on the iPhone applications that I like that I'm not sure I can get on other stuff. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Android, but I would like. I should. I would probably consider like Windows Phone or something like that. But it's like I, I the software on it is not good in a lot of cases. There's stuff that's missing on it, and it's it, you're constantly going to have that. I mean, I I don't know. I suffered through that with WebOS for years, but I don't know. All right, I was off on a tangent. I'll shut up now. That's cool, man. Cool story, bro. <laughs> so, 
you you've been talking you know you you talked about it some but chris i think that i think it's interesting that i think the thing that people don't realize is that they often don't realize is that products that succeed in the marketplace typically are not the best product they're typically the ones that are marketed the best and hopefully that's a good product. <laughs> a lot of times it's not a good product. Yeah, because like if you talk um, I know I talk about this thing all the time where you have the you're talking about you you one of the classic ways to to drive interest in a product is there's a uh, like a tripod to make your thing stand on. You have pain, a dream and a solution. So the products that succeed are often ones that where the people have been success, successful in getting out the message saying Here's a pain that you're feeling, right? It's a problem. You have some task that you want to do. It sucks to do it, but there's something that makes it easier. So you say, you know, like, for example, a a pitch for my book would be, you know, figuring out how to test your code uh, can be a pain in the ass. What if I could offer you something that makes it easier to do it? The solution is buy my book because my book shows you how to write code that you can test easily. So really successful products really plumb that to almost to the point where you're sick about hearing about them where it's Mm -hmm. like, I have this problem. Here's the solution. And you go and use it. And yes, it fixes the problem. Like I know that somebody, uh, Larry Allman, uh, who's an author that I know, who's a PHP guy. He came and spoke at true North PHP and he's writing a book about the, uh, ye framework, which I joke is that's the sound that people make when I strangle them because they're not writing tests. Um, (laughs) So he complained about the marketing messages surrounding Laravel, right? Which is another PHP framework where Laravel is branding itself as, oh, the PHP framework for artisans. Okay. We can argue about the message, right? Yeah, I know. Is that kind of a douchey marketing thing to do? Absolutely. Because as far as I can tell, there's nothing that says if you are an artisan, this is the framework you should be using. In fact, I pointed out to them that of all the documentation that they have, they exactly have one really sparse page on how to write tests for it. And I said, you know, some artisans do write tests for their applications. So, but the the point I was trying to make that, yeah, sometimes the, the actual best thing doesn't win the marketing battle, doesn't win the battle of whatever turns out to be the tool that most people want to use. So, well, I think, I think the thing that you always have to know about your product is like how, how the customer, like how it's really solving the customer's problem. And if you don't really understand that, I mean, you're just, you're not going to win that battle if you have any competition. So if you've got somebody that can explain you know, to whatever customer you're fighting over exactly why it is their product is going to solve their problem better. It doesn't matter if their problem is actually solved better. Like the, the thing is they explained it better. And, and that's, I mean, that's the fundamental conceit I think in any software is that part of the process of, you know, getting something out there that people actually use is convincing them that you're solving a problem for them. Yeah. And I think developers, for the most part, have a distaste of marketing because they want everything to succeed on merit. They want to actually say, this is the best technical tool for solving well, this particular problem. And they misjudge what merit is, right? Like the merit is the fact that the customer understands what you're doing. Like this to me comes down to 
like people's differing philosophies on teaching. You know, like there's there's this idea that if I put it out there, you know, the people that are really interested are going to understand it. Or there's, you know, if they don't understand it, I didn't teach it. And, you know, those two ideas are kind of, I mean, they're, to me, they're diametrically opposed. Like you have to put in the effort. You have to understand how you're being perceived in order to succeed. And until people kind of grasp that, I mean, they're, I mean, you're just, I mean, there are, I mean, I imagine there are examples of where people succeed in spite of themselves, but the, the place where the marketing really works is when you really convince someone you're like, yes, this is solving your problem. And if it's not solving exactly your problem right now, I'm going to figure out a way to solve it for you. Yep. I mean, I constantly do that with spaz. I, I, I literally could not bring myself to write halfway decent marketing copy for it because it, <laughs> it was so like every time I'd write it, it would be so dry and matter of fact because I could not bring myself to do anything that I perceived as uh, either bragging or uh, not, not even bragging, but just something that I felt was, Great, I just coughed with a, the damn fucking mute on. Um, so yeah, anything that that seemed like um, what's the word? Uh, anything it was, I guess, markety. You know, anything it was like, paint a picture for you know this is solve your problem or or just this is what kind of cool experience it would be or an exaggeration of any kind. Right. So let me let me let me extent. ask you let me ask you a question, Ed, about this because. Yeah. It, Maybe the problem that you had coming up with a suitable, and I'm using air quotes, marketing message, is yep. that maybe you didn't really know what it is you wanted to do with SPAS. It, it, it occurs to me that you didn't create SPAS because you wanted everyone to use it. you just like, I want to create an alternative. And and I always thought that your attitude was, well, here's a, a freely available Twitter client. If you want to use it, that's cool. I'm willing to put some work into it to get it to do a few different things. But if you don't want to use it, that's still cool too. I'm just trying to provide an alternative to the commercial ones or just an alternative to the web interface to Twitter. So, so yeah. the problem was, as I, as I saw, was that you just didn't know what it is you wanted SPAS to be. And that's cool. I mean, your goal wasn't to like commercialize SPAS. It didn't seem to me that you were using SPAS as a tool to promote yourself to say, Hey, check out. These are all the skills I have. I built this cool thing called SPAS. Why don't you hire me to do similar things for you? That wasn't your intention. You're just like, you wanted to learn how to do something. You wanted to learn how to build a Twitter client. It initially started as an Adobe Air thing and all this other stuff. And it just seemed to me that you were just doing it because it was something that you wanted to do. So in that case, there wasn't really a need for a marketing message. You weren't gaining anything. It didn't matter how many people use SPAS. It didn't matter if you and one other person were the only people that ever used SPAS. You were right. cool with it just because you got it to work to do what you wanted to do, and anything else was just a happy side effect. Yeah, sometimes I believed that, and sometimes I did not. <laughs> um, well, so I, it, yeah. you know, there there is, you know, uh, I think Postgres, right? Like, they forever that's been the philosophy is like, if it works for us, then that's good enough. And it's only been very recently that people have started trying to think about, you know, what if somebody's not 
a core developer of Postgres? Like, how do they feel about this feature that we've just pushed out there? And how do they feel about this change in, you know, whatever API or backend protocol or, you know, whatever. Like, it's, it's for the most part, been a database that we develop for ourselves. Um, and, I mean, and that's, that's exactly that a book like, you know, like Crossing the Chasm, you know, like that's, that's that gap, you know, that point where you get to where you're like, oh, we're going to start addressing this audience that isn't us. You know, how, how does that work? And how do we get in the minds of those people? How do we have empathy for those people that aren't us? That's true. What, is there a plane flying over you? Yeah, there is. I live is near awful. a plane. Just one plane? <laughs> plane. Plane. Just a, a plane <laughs> on an airport. It's just a plane. <laughs> <laughs> this time of night, they don't care about my noise pollution. It's terrible. Oh, Worst we don't ever. need no noise pollution. <laughs> the ACDC shout out there. I think you mixed up Pink Floyd with that ACDC. <laughs> That's it, Ed. We're through. Through. This is over. 27 oh. episodes and done. Mic drop. Mic drop. Ping. Ping. I'm off to Belgium, bitches. Really? <laughs> Are you going? Yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going tomorrow. Jealous. Keynoting, baby. Finally, what? finally made it to the big time. Wait, you can believe they got him. Down? Where are you? Is, uh, what? 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 Where are you? Nice. Where are you keynoting? Uh, PHP Benelux. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. Right. Doing my. I was doing thinking, my. Uh, there's also Fosdem. You know. No, not no. I'm not cool enough for that yet. Oh no 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 no. No Fosdem. Cool enough no. though. I mean, it's like a crap load. There's like five thousand people there. At Fosdem, yeah, it's humongous. He's not gonna. Yeah, but they—I mean—they leak over into the PHP thing. Yes, yeah, like Ed so uh, muddled in the background there. Yeah, I'm not cool enough for them. That's not gonna happen. It ain't happening. Yeah, I'm doing my uh, how to be grumpy for fun and profit keynote, so I'm looking forward to that. That's awesome. You need to tell me what to do. My I gotta do a. I'm doing a keynote in like April, and like I need a good topic. It's all about the branding. You should talk about what you learned from your failed my personal brand. Yeah, your personal your personal brand of failure. <laughs> yeah. I know, like all of my stuff is so bad. It's like how to be the worst. That's my personal. How to brand. be the See, best at being the worst. I think that's an awesome uh, topic for a keynote. I really, I gotta say, all I think all of my favorite talks have usually been about things that failed. Well, because talking mine about, too, but I'm like a bastard. Like I think. I'm literally a bastard, but also I think that. Oh, well. Whoa. I think also. TMI there. I think also. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Wow, I hope your parents don't listen. Jeez. Truth, truth hurts. Truth hurts. Um, but the. Also, yeah. No, I mean, most of my talks are about failure. Yeah. Oh, I think you learn a ton from that, right? I, right. I, I think that not enough people talk about it. Stories about Stuff failure that are, work. stories about failure are way better than stories about success because talking about failure kind of shows that you are cognizant that you're not the best at what you do and sometimes the shit you do doesn't work. Whereas to many people talking about success, just some people um, think that it's just bragging when you talk about the stuff that worked. And me, I'm like, hey, man, if I did something that it worked, I have no problems talking about it. I also have no problems talking about the stuff that I did that didn't work. Well, yeah. And I, well, I mean, the stuff yeah. that you—if you talk about what didn't work, then you're actually saving other people time. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I just I always feel like I learn a lot more from that. I I think because I don't know. I I basically feel like the successes that most people have had I uh, that a lot of it comes not all of it, but a lot of it comes down to luck. And so if you like where are you going to get up there and say, "Well, I did all this stuff, but I also got lucky too." So, you know, missing narrative I, from a lot of startups is that it's the refusal to acknowledge the role of luck in their success. Well, yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. At, Selena. <laughs> Nothing. Failure. Yeah, all the fail, all the time. All the fail. It's easier to not try. Trust me. Just yeah. don't try at all. No, that's true. How's your artisanal wine doing over there, uh, Selena? How, how many? It's what? pretty awesome. Yeah, how, I've got how deep into the like bottle are you? Half. I've only got half the bottle left. Oh, look up. Time to get I a bigger a glass. I know. I need a bigger glass. No, I had. I was. I was talking about earlier how I made some really awesome chicken curry. So good. Yeah. Maybe you can give us the yes. recipe, and we'll put the link in the show notes. That'd oh be nice. yeah, I totally good. It's so good. Delicious. Get some uh, artisan curry to go with your artisan web framework. Yeah. What does that even mean? Does that mean like artisan? Web, what is that? I think it means mean? no tests. So therefore, <laughs> yeah, right? I hate it. No, no I, tests. I, I think what they're trying to say is that people who care about building stuff with frameworks will want to use our framework because it's sleek and it's it's hot and it's PHP five four and it's it's all these things that it probably really isn't. That sounds less artisan. <laughs> like that sounds like they're making it easier for you, and like that doesn't what. Yeah, because oh, like artisans should struggle with their tools, right? Should be like, no, man, when you a framework, it's a block of wood, and you got to get that vintage planer and belt sander out, and you just, you know, you fuck that shit up until it does exactly what you need it to do. I mean, that's uh, like I think the artisan would have to write his own uh, or or her own uh, like web server, like, and then build on top of that. You could do that in Python, couldn't you? Well, I mean, kinda, what? You got to implement a 200, a 404, and that's it. I mean, <laughs> that's it. 200, that's the 404, and a, and, and a 500. A 500, yeah, and the mic. That's, that'd be a good frame. And a mic drop. What mic is drop. the code for a mic drop? That's my question. Ooh, what's the HTTP response code for a mic drop? Yeah. 302, redirected, boom, drop the mic. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's not a redirect. Like, it's a definitive, like, no, nothing else. It's like a definitive the end. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think a 200 is a mic drop. <laughs> well there's 204 isn't there 204 no content yeah Ooh. 204 probably 204 alright 204 God, we're such a bunch oh. of nerds nerds <laughs> talking about HTTP, <laughs> HTTP response codes alright you know what I think we're done here I don't want to talk anymore <laughs> I think we covered everything that I wanted to talk about so clearly we're done yeah, probably. All right. So this has but, been. Thanks episode, for inviting yeah. me back. I uh, really appreciate it's always it. glad to have, super a, fun. have a repeat yeah. offender on. It was awesome getting an inside view into Mozilla. So this has been another exciting episode of the Development Hell Podcast, number two seven biatches, and I'm making gang signs while I say it too. So oh, as always, nice. we want to thank our awesome sponsors. We'll do them in reverse order this time. Thank you to Paul Reinheimer and the awesome folks at Wonder Network for uh, providing the bandwidth and tools to allow people to listen to us talk about this shit live. Uh, check out uh, Paul Reinheimer's GitHub, P. Reinheimer. Check out a 
XH, which is a nice front end for XH Prof, which is a really cool um, PHP profiling uh, tool. I'm starting to come around to the idea that the debugger is not what you need. You need a profiling tool to tell you where shit is all backed up in your application and where to smooth the XLAX in there to get it flowing again. Oh, good lord. Awkward. Oh, that is totally awkward. And so there's a nice segue. Also, let's thank our awesome sponsors at EasyBib. Um, let me flip over. EasyBib is a bibliography and research management platform with over 37 million students a year using it. And hundreds of schools and universities have signed up, including New York University, Ohio State University, and the international schools of Dusseldorf, Und Bavaria. So they are looking to hire junior and senior PHP developers to work in their offices in Berlin. So check the show notes for the link to the uh, job description and there's all the details there, who to email it to. I love the guys behind um, EasyBib, Till and his partner. They're really cool people. And on top of it, they're German. So as always, you can find everything to do with this podcast on our website, devhell.info. Every single thing that we've ever done, including the episode that Selena originally appeared on, is there. Um, we're also on iTunes. Please, 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 please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. It lets us know. Please, please pretty please with please. sugar on top. It lets us know whether we're doing a good job. But to be honest, we don't give a shit what you think. We're just going to talk about whatever we want. No, uh, you can find us on Twitter care. at dev, uh, dev underscore hell. You can find me on Twitter at grumpy programmer without the U. You can find Ed as Funkatron with the U. Selena is on Twitter as Selena Marie, all one word. Uh, you can uh, follow her and find out what What's cool in the world of Python, Portland, and working at Mozilla. So thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. I'm off to Belgium. If you're going to be a PHP Benelux, don't be afraid to come up and talk to me. I'm not as grumpy in person as I am on the podcast. So Yes, he is. Good night, yes, everybody. Good night, Internet. Good night. Good night. And now we drop the mic.